This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I don't think it should come as a total surprise to many people that with the importance that the retail sector puts on data, that they would also be very interested in the items that you return as well. Best Buy is one of the companies that are paying a third-party firm to track the purchases that customers are returning. And in some cases, the ability to return the item and get a full refund is being blocked. This is in part to deal with what is called habitual returning. Retailers lost $351 billion in sales last year alone in this area. And in some cases, people are also blocked from returning an item for an extended period of time. To take a look at this interesting aspect of retail, we are joined in studio by Peter Fader, who is a marketing professor here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us on the phone is Dr. Dale Rogers, who's a professor of business at Arizona State University. Pete, as always, great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Dan, great talking to you on a, on a Friday. Let's talk returns. Absolutely. Dale, great to have you with us. Thanks. Nice to be with you. So the company that's doing this, Peter, it's, it's called a Retail Equation. Seemingly, they are looking to take out the element of retail where people just have this habit of maybe buying an item, maybe using it for a day or two, and then immediately returning it. Yeah, I think it's, it's great that we'll start calling attention to quantifying returns and start weaving them into to broader uh, retail business practices. Uh, it, it might be kind of jumping in a little too deep too quickly. Maybe we have to kind of work our way into these waters because they are shark-infested. Yeah. Uh, but I think it, it really is important to call attention to it. It's something we've kind of put aside all this time. We spent a lot of time talking about the experience in the store. We spent a lot of time talking about shipping, other kinds of customer service. This is real important. It's big dollars, and it shouldn't be viewed uh, independently of the others. Well, and Dale, when you're, when you're talking about the number that I mentioned, $351 billion in sales lost because of items that were returned, that, that is obviously a significant number that the retail sector has to deal with. Yeah, and it seems like it's 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 increasing. You know, we've done surveys over the years where we looked at attitudes towards returns. And if you go back to the 90s when we started doing these, um, you know, people, people looked at retail stores in sort of a more honest way. And, and it's pretty clear that uh, consumers, um, you know, are, are more willing to take advantage of retailers in 2018 than they were in 1998. So it is a problem um, that, that has increased, although um, I, I really caution retailers to be careful around this because if you look at the history of of retailing the the transference of risk from the consumer to the retailer was a big part of of building the the greatest retail sector the world has ever seen so are retailers starting to see a little bit of a blowback dale because of the use of this i mean some customers that don't normally you know, get tagged. I mean, you're having customers basically getting tagged and saying that they did something wrong. Obviously, there's an element out there that that does this on on a on a consistent basis. But people that don't do it on on a consistent basis are being tagged on this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think strategically, retailers are thinking about, you know, it, what's the value of a of a customer for life versus once you do this, are you going to lose the customer for life? 
but but the trade-off where there are people that are are very uh, abusive, you know, and and really unethical when it comes to returns. You know, you have but you have to be careful. You have to you have to roll this out in a very careful manner because um if you check the the Yelp reviews on um on the retail equation they're incredibly negative but do you want those people for customers or not that's that's the that's the question and you have to analyze um what's the what's the value of of irritating a segment of your customer base although i think it's generally a small segment so I think uh, one way to, to address the question that Dell raises is to maybe reframe the answer. Uh, like, Dan, you said it twice now that retailers lost $351 billion. Right. It's not clear to me that that's a loss. I mean, do they lose money on customer service? It's a cost, to be sure. Right. But it's not necessarily a loss. And in that same way, if we could reframe it so that uh, instead of viewing returns as a God-given right, if we could somehow slowly... Uh, reframe it as a as a privilege that if you're our if you're part of our loyalty program if you've demonstrated certain kinds of behaviors that we will give you more return privileges right. than we'll give to our you know basic economy customer uh, I, I think we can uh, uh, find a way to kind of uh, have people accept that there might be limits and 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 how much they can return or when they can return it so then you know that's absolutely right with what Peter just said and and um and and if you think about the secondary market, which we track the secondary market in the U.S. and it's it's over five hundred billion dollars, it's it's more than three percent of U.S. GDP. Those returns, many of them, d- depending on what the type of product is, but but some of those returns go right back to the retailer shelf, and it's not truly a loss. And then other of those returns get funneled into the secondary market where they might show up at you know, um, a value price retailer such as Ross's or Marshall's or one of those folks or or factory outlets. Or there's a lot of channels where returns tend to funnel through. And so Peter's absolutely right. You don't really lose that that money. That's that's it's sort of a false number. Well, then, then let me ask you this. Uh, think of a company like L.L. Bean, which for the longest time had basically this free return policy. If something didn't fit you, if you know, if it wasn't right for you, you had the ability to return it. They made the decision a few months back, I think about a year ago, to change their return policy. That obviously irked some customers, but it was probably done in part because of this of this issue that they're seeing, and they want to you know be able to stay ahead of the curve, correct? Right. So instead of uh, framing you know uh, infinite sky's the limit return as the default policy, you know we'll give you a reasonable amount of time. We'll give you more time if you're part of the loyalty program. We'll give you more time if you've referred other people. You know, I'm just making things up here. Yeah. But but uh, giving making more generous returns kind of a bonus, something that you get rewarded for instead of something that you're born with. I think we can get uh, customers there, and I don't think the transition needs to be quite as as, uh, as, as dramatic. It doesn't have to have this, this kind of blowback that we've seen in this, this one Best Buy case. But but is it harder, Dale, because there are certain cases where the customer has the, this expectation already kind of ingrained in them? Yes, but but also but but also no, and I'll tell you why. So so we've done several um, uh, focus group kind of research um, initiatives over the years, and 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 we were comparing several retailers together, 
And if you go back to 2001, 2003, when we first started doing this, it was really interesting to see that that a retailer with a stricter return policy, um, uh, it was Target at the time, who in order to return something, you know, they had to scan it and they had to check and see if it was still being sold. And you compared them to one of their, their competitors who were much looser but more inconsistent in their return policies. It just depended which person you hit, and it wasn't a systemized uh, uh, um, uh, service desk system. And, and, and consumers actually preferred the experience they were getting at Target because it was standardized and seemed fair. And, and the return policies were posted and and so the rules were clear. And what consumers really like is a clear structure on how this is going to work. One of the complaints about a system such as the retail equation is that it that it is seems to consumers, and it may not be just sort of random and and ad hoc, but it seems to consumers sometimes like it is. And and consumers really prefer uh, consistency and stability in sort of uh, how they interact with most any business. And certainly that's true with retailers. So uh, Delray is an excellent point. I think that the biggest shock of, of that Best Buy story uh, isn't the fact that they limited returns, but the fact that the, the, the customer had no idea that this was coming. Yeah. If yeah. they had been clearer about it, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. Well, and, and the interesting uh, the thing that Dale uses the word fair, I, I mean, the expectation of fair is not always there when you're talking about a variety of businesses. But I, I guess for the consumer, if things are perceived to be fair, there's a, there's at least an idea of acceptance, of understanding, okay, well, this is part of the rules. I understand. It seems like it, it, I'm not being, you know, I'm not being targeted. I'm not being jabbed at this. And, and they're more willing to accept it. And I think a great example would be on the shipping side. Where the, the 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 default isn't that you will have this tomorrow. The default is that you'll probably have to wait three four days for it. But under certain circumstances, if you're a certain kind of customer, then you can get it tomorrow or the day after. So that's fair, uh, and I think people accept it. They they don't complain about it. Uh, this just hasn't been handled quite that same way. But but it gives the decision in that case. It gives the decision to the consumer of how I want to receive it. Does it need to be in a rush? In certain cases, you know, that, that will be the case. Or can I wait three to seven days to be able to have that, that package arrive on my doorstep? And it could be the same thing with returns. Dale? Yeah, I, I think as well. I, I, but, but the truth is that consumers want it how they want it these days. It, and it's up to the, the retailer and sometimes the brand owner. Because what really happens in a lot of these cases is the retailer takes it back and then they immediately push it back onto the manufacturer or the, the owner of the brand. So so for the retailer, it's keeping the consumer happy, and it's just a pass-through um, to the manufacturer. And depending on the relative power structure between the retailer and the manufacturer, the, you know, the manufacturer probably has to end up taking it back. But, but, but the, the thing that we have found is that uh, consistency, stability, and making sure the consumer understands what the rules are. It, you know, if if they're if they're treated um, in a consistent manner, they're going to be generally okay 
with whatever the whatever the, the the rules are. It's where they feel like there's randomness or or that they're being treated especially badly. Um, that you see higher dissatisfaction among consumers. And just to add one other point to what Dell just said, it's it's uh, uh, giving the consumer a sense that the the retailer is doing this for a good, justifiable reason. You know, one of the problems with with airlines is that uh, consumers feel they're they're being gouged because the airlines sure. can get away with it. There's not necessarily a, a ton of business sense behind some of those limitations. I think in this area of returns, consumers will understand that you can only do so much, that that if you have a relationship with us, we will let you make whatever, you know, a 12 returns over the year. You know, you can yeah. pick them, but it's not, it's not sky's the limit. I, I think uh, it, it's easily justifiable as long as it's clear and, and stated up front. Well, in the reporting on this particular move, uh, they mention also companies like JCPenney, CVS, as, as other companies that are using this model to be able to, you know, continue the growth of their business, but also, you know, kind of lessen the impact from some of the people that, that do these particular things. When you look at those two companies, JCPenney and CVS, Peter, I mean, obviously, they're much different companies, but from the retail perspective, they're still looking to to hit that bottom line. Sure. I think it goes back to a a buzzword that all retailers are talking about these days, omni-channel. So let's take a spin on that. You know, the the idea being that that we can uh, interact with our customer through any, you know, online, offline, whatever channel they want to deal with us. I think it also should be omni-functional which is to say that our policies for shipping, our policies for uh, other kinds of personalized things we do, and our policies for returns should all be synced up with each other. Yeah. And the problem is if, if we are kind of really pushing in, in one direction, let's say on returns, and it's not, it's not aligned with what we're doing with shipping or some of these other activities, uh, it, it calls too much attention to it. It, it seems somewhat arbitrary. It, you know, it, it's disconnected. I think if we could create alignment there, then people understand that this give and take exists across all these functional areas. And, Dale, it's another reason why uh, uh, retailers focus, uh, I mean, have, and, th- and they continue to, even more on the relationship with the consumer and, and having that, that, that positive mention every time that, that a consumer will come into a particular store or, or buy something from a website online. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, it's ironic, Dan, I think about, uh, you mentioned pennies. So if you think about how come pennies became one of the the great retailing successes of the 20th century, you know, they started out in a little town, Kemmerer, Wyoming. Um, they were a general store. You can actually go to Kemmerer, Wyoming and see the, the J.C. Penny mother store still. Kemmerer, Wyoming, the whole town is smaller than the Wharton, than the University <laughs> of Pennsylvania campus. It's just this tiny place. Well, how come they were able to rocket out of there and and really become a great retailer in the, the 20th century, maybe not in the 21st century, but certainly in the 20th century. Well, it was two innovations. One was cash and carry. That was a big deal. They were among the first to do that. But the other one was open returns, no questions asked. And it was that transference of risk from the consumer to the store. And it, and it was a bet. It was, you know, it was it was a, a risk management um, uh, initiative where you said, look, having a customer for life is worth taking a hit on returns from time to time. Because at the time, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, people weren't really 
very open returns. It, it felt like the consumer would be stealing if they'd bring it back. And, and one of the things that, that led to the U.S. being the greatest retail sector ever in any place in the world is this uh, allowance of, of risk to be transferred. And, and it's kind of ironic to me that in its uh, glory days, um, pennies was, would encourage returns. In fact, um, for years and years, the average return rate among the, the retailers in the same category of pennies were around 6%. And pennies was pretty proud that their returns percentage was higher because uh, they thought that that was an important part of how they marketed, um, you know, that pennies was a great place to, to shop. And, and it's a little bit ironic to me that today that, that pennies is really trying to track down on returns. Now, it's not unreasonable that they'd want to change the equation a little bit, but, um, but when they were a great store, they had open returns. Today, I'm not sure many people would say they were a great store anymore, <laughs> and they're trying to crack down a little bit. So Dale raises some, some fantastic points there. And it actually turns out that uh, J.C. Penney was uh, not only founded in Kemmerer, Wyoming, but it happened 116 years ago tomorrow, uh, April oh, wow, 14th. Right. Uh, but the, the important point there isn't, isn't so much the, the calendar date, but the fact that it was 116 years ago. Sure, yeah. And back then, it was, it was basically impossible to tag and track customers the way we can today. And so you didn't really have much choice. Uh, you, you you couldn't single people out and do the kinds of things that that you know retail equation or, or the, that we're referring to here. But today we can. It's a different set of rules. And so uh, what was done back then was for operational reasons. It would have been just too expensive to track it. But today it's it's a different story. Uh, and as long as we can tie in the return activity with the purchasing activity uh, and, and recognizing, as Dale said, that sometimes returns are actually good. It's a sign of engagement. Hey, they're coming back to the store. They're dealing with us. you, you got to get the full picture in mind, which we can do today. But we couldn't do in 1902, especially when they have the positive experience on the second time when they're coming back to the store. Right. Because that's that, that will keep that cycle going. Correct. Exactly. If we're in it for the long run, if we're really trying to maximize customer lifetime value, the overall value of the relationship, then, then having those touch points. Well, there's no doubt there's some bad by having to, to take the, mar- the merchandise back right. and lose some of that margin. But uh, but there's also the good for the future. But is there a positive impact in this, especially now when you're talking about how retail is having its struggles from time to time? We see, you know, companies like Toys R Us getting ready to shut down, although that's not necessarily in this realm. But, it, it you know, we've seen a variety of retailers getting ready to shut their doors in the last few years. So can this component actually be a positive, as small maybe, overall for, for retailers moving forward? Well, they can minimize the negative by, uh, by having clear, consistent policies. And I think they can turn into a positive by saying, because you are a gold customer, we'll give you more returns than your next-door neighbor. Dale? You know, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll tell you, you it, when you're doing this kind of thing, you're minimizing loss and you're minimizing fraud, and you're doing that in the short term. But what's, what's happening in the long term? I, Peter, you probably remember this as well. Ten or 15 years ago, I would talk to um, uh, executives, and everybody would tell me, you know, Amazon isn't making any money. They're, they're doing things that, that don't make any sense. They're not making any money. 
This isn't going to last. This can't be a good thing. <laughs> and they were sort of whistling past the graveyard because, you know, I saw one of those guys recently. And I said, hey, did you see that Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in the world? It seems like Amazon's doing fine. But but there was this belief that Amazon was too customer friendly, that they were uh, cutting their profits too much because they were uh, getting things to the customer in two days or one day. And now within a, a matter of minutes in some uh, metropolitan areas and, you know, usually serving the customer better, serving the consumer better. I mean, you can go out of business giving consumer stuff for free. But serving the customer better usually works out in the long run, truthfully. Well, and, and as far as we know, Amazon's still not making money through the e-commerce part, but they are making money through d- building up all this customer equity, just having this large yeah. number of customers who will go through the gates of hell to stay with them. Uh, that, that really is money in the bank, even if it's not showing up on the balance sheet or the income statement. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We're talking about uh, retailers looking more at your returns now these days. Peter Fader from the uh, Wharton School joining me here in studio. Dale Rogers from Arizona State University joining me on the phone. 844-942-7866 uh, is the number if you would like to join in and give us a call. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the days of, you know, it used to be uh, when the Super Bowl came around every year. You know, people would be rushing out to go get the TV so they could have the big TV for the Super Bowl. And then some of them would invariably, you know, want to take it back on the Monday or the Tuesday after the game to try and get their get their money returned. They just want to have that experience. Now, obviously, that was, you know, one smaller example. But again, the element of the of the business is to try and have the best experience possible for every consumer going going through their door. Well, look, that kind of abusive return, that should certainly stop. But that's, a I, I would think, Dale might know better, a, a kind of a tiny fraction of returns. Yeah. The bigger issue is someone who wants to get a pair of shoes. They don't know exactly size or color, so they get eight pairs, and then they return seven. Uh, that's actually just, just part of business today, and the rules allow it. Uh, but I think we can, we can that, that's what we should be focusing on a lot more. Dale, how, how, how significant is that part of the problem? The uh, that where someone buys seven pairs of shoes yeah. and keeps one, you know, actually some retail, some online retailers encourage that. I mean, if you look at Zappos, which is now part of Amazon, or Warby Parker, the the eyeglasses uh, folks, they actually encourage that. Um, again, it's it's making things easier for the consumer. It's reducing risk, and and if you order five pairs of eyeglasses and only keep one. And then send the other ones back. That's actually not a bad deal for Warby Parker. That that actually works for them. I, I'm sure they'd rather you bought five pairs and kept all five. One of the other things that that tends to happen with with consumers is they'll order five pairs of shoes and and then they'll end up keeping all five, but just because of you know sort of entropy and and it's hard to get back to the post office or wherever to to send the return back, but. But I don't. I don't think that's a huge issue um, for a lot of retailers. I don't think um, uh, most of them mind those kinds of things uh, that much. And it's a very small percentage. You know, if you look at return abuse, it's really less than one percent. Now, if you're talking several billion dollars in sales, one percent is not trivial. But but it, it's still a relatively small problem. And this goes back to the point that we we shouldn't be saying that returns are necessarily a loss. Uh, right. Yeah. In some cases, it's, it's just part of doing business. And as long as it's synced up with everything else, then 
we can put it in its proper place. Great having you with us today. Thank you, Peter, for coming in. Greatly appreciate Good it. Good talking to you, Dan, and D- Dale. Dale as well. Great to have you on the phone with us today. Yeah, Th- nice to be with you guys. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter Fader from here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Dale Rogers out at Arizona State University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.